Hi, welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on Web Talk Radio. I'm Steve Feldman, host of the program. In this program, we explore our modern healthcare system and what you need to do to make sure you get the best possible healthcare. Today, we have a good friend of mine, Dr. Roger Anderson. He's professor of public health science and chief of health services research at the Penn State College of Medicine. Roger is an expert on patient satisfaction and is going to be talking with us today about that. Hi, Roger. How are you? Hi, Steve. I'm fine. Thanks for, for having me on today. Oh, thank you so much for participating. Listen, I understand you are the chief of health services research in the Department of Public Health Sciences. I think we, our listeners probably have an idea of what public health is, but what's health services research? Okay, so health, health services research is really looking at how health care is de- delivered in an efficient and effective way. And, and so how, how can we reorganize and, and improve our health care system so that we're really getting the most value out of it? We spend, the mo- we spend more money in this country on health care than any other country in the world, yet we don't really feel like we're getting the maximum possible benefit from our health care system. So it's, it's really, you know, one of the, the sayings in, in health services research is, is it's the study of, of trying to find out how to give the right therapy to the right person at the right time. And, and so, you know, that's, that's, that's really it. I mean, it's, it's really looking at how can, you, how, can we dis- how can we design and improve our system to really, uh, again, to obtain the maximum value of our system. And we like also, you know, when I, I teach uh, students in health services research, in health in the field, health services research, I like to say that suppose we were to stop inventing new medicines today. You know, no more new procedures, no more new medicines. We could still continue to to wreak lots of benefit from our system just by improving what skills and tools we already have. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't keep inventing things because we we need more cures and and we do need better medicines, but the idea is that we're not using what we have effectively. Wow. You know, last week we discussed um, uh, patients' use of their medicine on the show, and it sounds like in, in that area alone we could uh, we could improve uh, patients' outcomes without new medicines just by getting people to use their medicine better. Is that is that part of health well, services well, research? Yeah, it is, because, you know, like if you look at the diabetes, for example, there are there are many treatment options, um, both um, therapeutic and non-therapeutic, meaning lifestyle, combined with therapy. And there are many options for a patient. And and what is the best one? And so, if, you know, the standard of care, you know, you might put, you might start all all of your patients on a certain medication regimen. But how do you know that that's really going to be working well for that person. You may be for a particular lifestyle or expectation or dietary pattern that one therapy may not work as, as well as another. And so unless there's routine screening and really asking the patient in, in a systematic way, how is it working? You know, do you, are you experiencing side effects? When are you experiencing, experiencing them? And really trying a tailored therapy approach you might actually end up with patients that are not adhering as well to their medicines. They're they're trying to self-manage the best they can, and they're trying to avoid side effects. But they might not actually be getting the optimal benefit from the medication. So it's an idea of, again, trying to, to, to tailor the treatment regimen to the individual's lifestyle. And in order to do that, there's a whole discussion that has to take place with the patient 
and it's time intensive. And our our system, our healthcare system, as great as it is, doesn't sometimes afford that amount of time that that you need that a, a physician or a nurse or other healthcare provider needs to really work with that patient. So it's it's intensive, but it's effective when you when when you can do it. My uh, scientific training was in test tube science and we were able to hold a lot of things constant and and what you're describing sounds like a very hard thing to study if you're if you're talking about instead of trying to find the one regimen that's right for everybody to come up with research that shows what's the best regimen when you tailor them specifically for individual patients yeah it it is it is difficult because it's a different mindset and so in a clinical trial for example where you're testing, uh, you know, drug A, uh, so your new drug versus a, a comparator, the conventional drug that's always used, you want to you want to adjust everything out. You want to pick patients who to include in your studies who are going to be very good candidates for your drug. There's not going to be any background factors involved. Uh, everybody looks like they would be a good adherer because you're really trying to see is this any is is this uh, is this drug efficacious? You know, does it really uh, produce the results that it was designed to produce in, in terms of under the skin. You know, is it controlling a risk factor, treating a disease, reducing a symptom? But in the real world, that's not what you have at all. You have patients who walk in with a number of different conditions, a number of different expectations. Uh, you might, pre- you know, for example, you might prescribe a new drug and the person can't afford it because it's the most expensive drug on the market. You've just basically written that person off of that drug. So um yeah so in the in the real world it's you know you you want to choose uh in, you know you would want to look at your your array of effective agents and then try to find the one amongst that portfolio of effective agents or drugs or therapy therapeutic approaches which one is the rest, is the best one for that patient and again that that's the the real hard part and i think the uh the art of of uh of of healthcare these questions are so hot right now as government tries to, you know, reassess and evaluate its role in, in health care in America. And, um, you know, I get a sense it's a lot like No Child Left Behind, that they, they want to measure results. They want to measure how well doctors are doing. It seems like if you had a doctor who was really good at tailoring things to specific patients – then you'd have a hard time measuring their quality because they'd be doing something different for each patient. Is, is that a big issue? Well, I mean, it, it, it potentially is because if, if you apply a cookie-cutter uh, approach um, to, somewhat, to a, a patient population um, and, and then you're really expecting to see performance in that, on that measure, <clears throat> and if, if you have a uh, – uh, if a, if a, if a, a clinician or a provider is is tailoring the therapy, maybe you know let's not get started right away with with medication. Let's see what we can do with their lifestyle uh, changes first. Um, then you might actually be be penalized for something like that, and uh, so that is a real concern. And and I, so there's another example of that is with. Uh, um, Women with breast cancer. So, if if you have an early, if a woman has early stage uh, tumor, that's a, she's a candidate for breast conserving surgery instead of mastectomy, which is the more radical procedure. And so, um, some organizations will actually count 
the proportion of women who are offered the more conservative surgical approach. I mean, the the one that's the breast conserving surgery approach, which is you know less impact, less potential disfigurement, um, easier on quality of life, and, and is beneficial from a number of standpoints. The problem is is that is that with breast conserving surgery, you also need five or six weeks of radiation therapy. And some women may not want that, or they may not have the ability to access that. And so if, if you don't, if the woman doesn't have that, if the patient doesn't have that approach, doesn't have, doesn't have the resources to access the radiation therapy, then probably breast conserving surgery is not the best choice for her. It's probably better, all things considered, than if if she were to go the route of mastectomy. Again, it's a, it's a personal decision that has to be made with the surgeon and, and the oncologist, but the point is is that that's the kind of danger you run into when you start to apply one standard to all patients, is that there are options, and some options fit some patients better than others. And so I think, you know, to make the world very simple, it's very tempting to say, well, everybody ought to get this. Um, but then that, that then gets us away from where really healthcare needs to evolve, and that is using our resources more effectively based on, on patient need and preference and lifestyle. So there is a bit of a, a, a push and pull on, in the reform, healthcare reform movement. You know, the, the, the push is, well, we really need to quantify everything, and the pull is, yeah, but it has to be customized. So that, that's a natural antagonism, and let's, let's see how it plays out. You know, it seems like you could say, well, for these diseases that cause death, that, well, you could just see how long the, the doctor's keeping the patients alive, but you could even imagine a situation, maybe in oncology, where a patient might choose to have, lead a shorter life in exchange for leading a better life. Yeah, and, 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 and this is a, an, ex, an excellent example. I mean, quality of life, health-related quality of life was one of the biggest innovations in recent uh, history in, 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 in health care measurement and outcomes. And, in, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years, we've, and partly it's because of the, of the luxury of having a number of different effective approaches, We've 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 shifted from looking at you know say the number of people that have a an MI or for example some kind of acute clinical event or the the proportion of people who survive to looking at the quality of the life. So you know you can keep people alive, but what is the quality of their life? And so so that's a again a, another focus on the patient-centered um, measurement, I mean, the patient-centered focus of of this of the of healthcare is is what is it like from the consumer, the patient's point of view. How is the therapy benefiting a person in their individual life? So, you know, for example, people don't go to the, their family physician because they want, um, you know, their, uh, their, their blood pressure controlled. They want to have an ability to live a long and productive and healthy life. So it makes sense to really begin to measure how well we're doing in terms of those outcomes. What is your quality of life, your functional status, your ability to remain independent? Um, and then that gets also into that satisfaction with health care, you know, as another measure of, of how is our health care system doing? Well, how satisfied are people with it? Does it meet their needs? 
So let's start with that blood pressure example. I think that's a beautiful example. If your blood pressure is 160 over 90, you don't really care. You don't care whether it's 160 over 90. You don't care whether it's 120 over 50. What you really care about is whether you're going to end up with a stroke or a heart attack um, because of that blood pressure. Right. And and so there um, you're investing you're investing time, um, change in lifestyle, the type of thing for something that really isn't affecting you symptomatically. You're not feeling your high blood pressure, but you're reacting. The patient hopefully is reacting to the risk that they have if it's not controlled. So so really what they're looking for is is, again, this long term benefit. Very good. So how do you measure a patient's quality of life? Well, you know, there are a number of, of good measures out there um, that have been used in, in both uh, clinical trials and in and the healthcare setting. Um, in general, these, these measures will, will look at multiple dimensions of a person's uh, health status and their satisfaction with their life. So, you know, we would look at, uh, you know, your basic physical functioning, your social participation, your psychological mood and status, um, you know, that, that type of thing. So you're really putting, put, basically measuring a number of dimensions, physical, psychological, social, and then adding those numbers up, coming up with an overall score. I imagine it's a typical... It's been shown to be, to be fairly robust uh, yeah. across different, a different patient, pop, different patient population. So for, for a listener, a, a typical thing I imagine they might measure is how many stairs can you go up before you get winded, or, or is that too specific? No, those are some of the items. So, you know, can you, can you walk a half a block? Can you go up and down stairs? So those would be some of your, your lower-level items. Um, but then there can be items at the higher range, like participating in vigorous activity, uh, work, like uh, maybe heavy yard work or gardening, really to try to get a sense of where a person falls in the continuum from from completely physical fit, the way you might have felt when you were 20 years old, mm-hmm. to, you know, to really barely being able to be independent or, in fact, not even being independent. So where does a person fall in that in that? That spectrum, and then once you know that, then you can begin to say, okay, well, here, you know, here is a person who may need uh, this additional care. Now, obviously, a lot of these conditions can be are pretty self-evident in terms of a clinical practice setting, I, I would imagine. But, but you know, one of the things in at least in non-research applications, so in, in patient care. Um, in health services research, we look at how these instruments can really be useful to providing the clinician, um, the healthcare provider, additional information. For example, tracking change in their status. So, you know, it may be that um, a physician may ask the patient, well, how are you doing today? How do you feel? Well, that's a very open-ended question, and and if you got 10 people to ask that question, they'd probably each ask it in a little different way, Mm -hmm. and each each of them would think, well, I'm asking it in a very appropriate way, and they probably are. But, you know, we can use science to also help us say, well, you know, these are the different dimensions of physical health. And so if you wanted to actually get a thorough measurement, you know, we know that if you ask it in a particular structured way, you'd get a very good answer, you'd get a very valid and robust answer. So it might be that that, that structured way of asking the question or the questions 
will provide more insight to the healthcare system, the healthcare team, and, and, and versus the very simple open-ended question, how are you feeling today? So that's, that's kind of it, is the, the health is really a multidimensional concept, and the measures have kind of grown up around that concept to really touch all of the bases. So, so nowadays with healthcare reform, and they want to measure the the quality of medical care being given by physicians or by health systems. So, for people with high blood pressure or diabetes, they can measure blood pressures and measures of how much sugar there are, but that doesn't tell you anything about the patient's quality of life. So, you could also measure patient's quality of life, and and I assume that's could be very important. And then there's the issue of patient satisfaction, and this is an issue that I know you and I are very interested in. Our, our listeners should know that you and I put together a, an online patient satisfaction survey website, um, Doctor Score. Um, you want to talk a little bit about whether patient satisfaction is a, a measure of the quality of healthcare? Well, yeah, you know, it, it's it's a, it's a measure. It certainly is a measure of quality of healthcare because it it. It covers one of the dimensions, and that is sort of the patient-centeredness goal of, of healthcare. I don't think that patients are, in general, are very good at at looking at the technical qualities of their healthcare. You know, did I get the right medicine at the right dose at the right time? I think that's a different dimension of quality of care that that is is probably best left to treatment guidelines and professional recommendations. But the part about patient-centeredness. You know the care um, <clears throat> that's provided should meet the person's needs and should meet their expectations as well. So that might be um, access to care. You know, is it easy to get an appointment um, with your with your provider or your healthcare practice when you need one? Um, how, what about the continuity or the coordination of care? So if you're seeing a specialist and a generalist or a family physician. Is there coordination among those two providers or those two or three or four? I mean, the average uh, person over 65 is going to see uh, more than one, probably two, three, or four different physicians. Um, they may actually be on several medications, and these, these medications may be prescribed each by individual physicians. So there's a great um, challenge of coordinating care especially uh, with older age as more comorbidities begin to arise. More, so, more different diseases in one person. Yeah. Exactly, yes. So, yes, exactly. So the coordination of care is important, and how do you measure that? Well, one of the things is, is, is it being introduced and explained to the patient. Does the patient have a good understanding of, of who they're seeing, why they're seeing different specialists, um, and, and that type of thing. And, and then, you know, the whole experience of being a patient is important. You know, you're going into a, an office setting to discuss a health, a health problem. Maybe it's an ongoing problem that's being monitored. Maybe it's something that's new that has arisen in the last few weeks. And uh, so the patient has to reveal why they're there and get information from the healthcare team, the provider, the nurse, or whoever, whoever is taking care of them. And so how is the quality of that interaction? Are, are questions being asked and answered um, in a way that's understood and, and comprehended by the person? Does the patient feel supported? Um, you know, once they walk out of the clinic, you know, most of all of our self-care is really on our own. We just go go back to the, our physicians on a periodic basis just to get updates or 
prescriptions refilled or, or checking in, but most of the time we're on our own. So oh, that's how a great is, insight. How, is it to, how much is the patient supported? You know, if you're at home and something comes up, can you get information back to your physician and get some information about what I should do next? So all of that is very hard to tell if you're just looking at an office record. You really have to go to the patient and ask that. And, and that's the whole challenge is to find out what it, what is it like to be a patient and, and how supportive how supported does that patient feel in that healthcare system? Let me um, take you on a, on a tangent. One of the things you mentioned, one of the first things you mentioned addressing patient satisfaction is issues of access. On the other hand, if they're a patient, then you know they have access. And so you haven't measured what may be one of the most critical components of access, which is whether you ever get to the doctor at all. Well, that's true. I mean, the, the patient satisfaction measures do, do assume that the person has become a role, has assumed the role of a patient in some, in some fashion. Um, it does not address uh, you know, people in the community that, that have unmet needs for health care and, and can't get in because they don't have insurance or they don't have a regular physician or the, the practices near them are not accepting new patients. And, and, and that's really a very different type of measure, and, and actually there has not been a lot of work done in that particular area. Um, but it, it certainly needs there's cert, it's, it's certainly an area that, that needs to be focused on. All right. Well, let me just take a little, uh, a little intermission here and let our listeners know that they're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. My name's Steve Feldman. Our guest today is Dr. Roger Anderson. He's Chief of Health Services Research and Professor of Public Health Sciences at Penn State College of Medicine. Well, I want to pick up on the, the patient satisfaction issue. What can you tell us um, specifically about things you've learned about patient satisfaction, things, let's start, let's look at two things. One is what patients can do to make sure they have satisfaction and what doctors can do to make sure that their patients are satisfied. Let's start with the doctor part first, if, if you would. Well, you know, the, the number, you know, we, we've done a lot of, of, of interviews of patients and individuals in the community, various, various com, com, communities across the nation um, and really asking what do you what do you value in your health care what is it that you really uh, well this I guess uh, you, you asked me to talk about the the patient side I mean the physician side um, but you know really because patient satisfaction is really that exchange between the patient and the provider that you know I think the com there are common things that there are common the common dimensions of satisfaction and, and Providers might address it from a different standpoint than the patient. So, anyway, getting back to the the focus groups, what we've done is is interviewed people, asked them what they value in in healthcare, and it's it's really um, kind of boils down to a couple of basic things. Um, one is really being listened listened to to be engaged in the conversation to to feel as if you're going in um, and being treated with a great deal of respect and courtesy. And, and, you know, and that's not to say that most people don't get that, but that's certainly what they value. They also value you know, being able to spend enough time with their physician to feel as though they've been able to, to describe their, their problem, have the, the physician ask them questions, you know, 
and really try to work out a treatment plan or an approach. So, you know, in busy practices, um, you know, and it's really, I think, the way that the business model has, has evolved and has really affected medicine. So, you know, the average patient won't spend very much time with the physician, maybe three or four minutes, maybe eight minutes, um, just the way it is in busy practices. And there may be long waits of time to get to have that five to eight minutes. And so in our, in our research, what we found in, when we look at what are some of the drivers of patient satisfaction, um, what's a very valuable or very positive experience are really mostly the, the amount of time that you can spend with your physician. And, you know, we're not talking an hour or so. We're, we're just talking anything over 10 minutes. But what's very, you know, what's a very sort of what we call a toxic situation, which really leads to very low satisfaction is really spending only a few minutes. And, and you know, so, I, we, you know, many of your listeners may have had this experience where you, you've waited a long time. Maybe you've sat in the waiting room for 45 minutes to an hour. You finally get in. You're stuck in an exam room for another 15 minutes. And finally, the, you know, the nurse may come in and take your blood, pressures, bl blood pressure and weigh you and get some information from you, not really talk to you very much, but just write those things down in the chart. Finally, the physician comes in, the person that you've been waiting all this time to see. They spend just a very brief amount of time with you, and, then, and, and that's it. Then the nurse comes back and sort of finishes up. That's not to any criticism on, on nursing at all. It's just that there's very little amount of quality time that that, that, that patient felt, and they've actually waited a long time. Maybe it was a very... Uh, hard to get the appointment, maybe had to get a, a sitter for their children, maybe had to take time off of work. But now they've gone there and they've gotten this very, very, very brief experience and they really hadn't had a chance to ask all their questions or maybe get full information. So we we found that the amount of time alone that the physician spends with the patient is probably one of the most important drivers. And, you know, a lot of uh, of, of places, a lot of practices will talk about their waiting time. So we have to get our waiting times down. And it gets into an interesting situation because if you're getting your waiting times, if you're trying to reduce your waiting times by cranking the patients in and out, let's get them in, see them for two minutes or three minutes and move on to the next one. And, and if you're worried about satisfaction because of your long waiting times, you're actually working against yourself. You're better off, and we found this in our data, you're better off with longer waiting times and longer times spent with, with the physician than you are trying to shorten your waiting times by shortening the time with the physician. So in essence, to sort of wrap it all up, is people are willing to wait, you know, 45 minutes or so, if it's a quality experience for them. If they can get more than a few minutes with their, with their physician, it's the, wait, the waiting time doesn't drive satisfaction. It is the amount of time the patient spends with the and, and, you know, again, the toxic combination is a long wait and a very short visit. Well, from I've been wondering lately about how uh, what healthcare reform and medicine can learn from the Industrial Re Revolution. It, it seems like the most cost-intensive factor going into the healthcare visit experience is the physician's time. Yeah. Now, let's say... Let's say our current president manages to get everybody insured. Well, that adds a lot of demand onto an uh, onto 
a limited number of doctors. So unless they clone the doctors or somehow increase the number of doctors in a hurry, there will be on average less time spent with each patient unless unless there's some other way of getting around that. I, I just don't see the math there. I'm just wondering if if the Industrial Revolution tells us, you know, we should be limiting our doctor time for what the doctor does best. And if patients want to have more time discussing things, maybe the the diabetes educator is the person to do that with. Or in dermatology, we could conceivably have an acne or an eczema or a psoriasis educator who does the same thing the diabetes educator does. And, and maybe change expectations so that we don't really feel like we have to depend on the doctor to do things that other people could do equally well. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I think that, um, that uh, first of all, I agree with the problem that we're going to be facing in, in terms of our infrastructure. Um, while I think it's a, a, a noble goal, and, and hopefully we'll achieve it in the appropriate way to have national health insurance or to have access for everybody, right now I don't think we're built for that. You know, in terms of how many provide, how many physicians we have, and the the capacity that we have to handle it, I just, I, I, I don't think, I don't think it's there either, and I, I do think that has to grow, and it should be hopefully a gradual process, um, and 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 that will have the effect of, of, you know, in a sense, rationing time even more, and so that is a concern. But you know, the alternative model that you also talked about, where you know the the physician isn't single-handedly doing everything, I think is a, is a good model, and it is being practiced, particularly in, in, in the diabetes treatment areas where there are, are classes that patients go to that are held by uh, di- nurse, uh, nurse educators, other type of physician assistants, um, other types of healthcare professionals, and it works, it works fairly well. And it actually, these people who can become the specialists in patient education and patient support can actually do a better job than, than somebody who is trying to do a little of this and a little of that just to make sure that, the, that all the bases are covered. So I, I think it is a, a model where we'll, that we'll see more and more of, where, where healthcare is going to be differentiated more and more along, professional, along different professions. And I think that the the education, the monitoring, and the follow-up, those really time-intensive things are going to be shifted more and more from, you know, the, the little exam room to more of a counseling room. Um, you know, there have been also some experiments, and maybe they're not experiments anymore, but some, some practices are, are, are looking at uh, group visits where you'll have patients who have, you know, a common condition, like, again, like diabetes or like some, some other thing, some other health condition, and, and try to see four or five or six people at once. And I, I'm not sure how well that's working. Uh, you know, I, I think there are certainly people who would not like that kind of experience. You know, that just so reminds me of how McDonald's used to make hamburgers. <laughs> Instead of making them one by one like they do now, they used to make them in batches, if I'm not mistaken. Well, um, in this last, I know your time's busy. I know you have to prepare for a presentation for the National Institute of Health. I want to be respectful of your time, Roger. Um, I got the sense that that it, at the end of the show, I'd like to talk about specific things people can do to make sure healthcare is better. It sounded like what I heard is that the doctors can make sure they 
listen to their patients, spend the time doing it, and involve patients in some joint decision-making for what's best for the patient. Well, at the same time, what things can patients do to make sure that they can get the best healthcare, best medical experience? Do you have any general advice or even for specific conditions, some specific advice for folks? Well, you know, there are some things. And, you know, studies have – we've done studies, uh, you know, in health services research on, on, on something like a a – you know, it's been called a sort of a patient passport or maybe a logbook where, where people will write down um, what they're concerned about, uh, maybe write down, um, you know, if they had symptoms, you know, take make a log of, of when it happened and what their concern is. And so when they go into the uh, to see a physician or other health care provider, that they can they can have some some real directed information about, you know, this is what I'm concerned about. And, and it also helps the patient monitor their progress to, you know, it's really creating a diary, if you will, of, of the issues they're concerned about and bring that to the, to the office. And there are some, some, some books and templates that, that people can access to write this information down. But I think it helps to, to just really have these things organized rather than just walk in and say, well, gee, I'm feeling kind of funny, and, you know, and then you have to go into a long discussion about how, you know, a week ago when I was working out in the garden this happened, or then it happened again a couple of days later. But to really have a summary of, of what you think, you know, is, is going on and what's important for you. Well, I, I'm sure that as soon as people get into the exam room, they they get nervous. They forget everything. Having that luck sounds like a wonderful idea. I'm, I'm sure a, a list of the medications is yeah, yeah, a list of, of medications, um, and also to discuss with the with the physician what their expectations are. Um, you know, every you know patients. Um, some patients have expectations of being very much in charge and and really needing to agree on every decision and wanting to be involved in that. And if that's the type of person that you are, you really need to let the provider know that you really are taking, you know, you really want to take this active role. And, and, and you know, that's very, very helpful and very healthy for you to do that. And, so, and I guess at the other extreme, if you're like, I think most of my patients are, and, 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 and you feel like, oh, I didn't go to medical school. I'm here for your best advice. Maybe you can let the doctor know that too, that, you know, you, you trust the doctor's input and whatever the doctor says is fine with you. Well, and I, I think that, you know, both, you know, types of patients that we've been talking about, the very active one and the more passive one, I think they're both trusting of, the, of their physician. It's just that one wants to be more involved than, than, than the other does. And, and if you don't involve that patient, then that person is not going to be very happy. And you might want to involve that patient, but you might think, well, you know, maybe she, he or she doesn't really want to get into this. So I guess, again, it's sort of like letting the, 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 the provider know what your expectations are as a patient. And, Roger, um, I think this is a, a great point to mention that doctor rating site again, doctorscore.com, because this is a way patients can give their doctors feedback. And and I think you and I are passionate believers that that's a critical component of the of sort of a loop of of, of, of patients giving doctors feedback so that the, the doctor knows how to do what they want to do most, which is make their patients well and happy. Yeah, no, I I think that 
what the the revolution that we've seen in the last um, few years, even, is, is really the, the the ability of patients to to you know look around and compare physicians on ratings. You know, and this is a this is just beginning, and, and it's going to spread more and more. Um, and, and you know, sites like DoctorScore.com and others allow you to go on and and you know search for a physician in your area. You can look at ratings from other patients who have of that particular physician. And while you know everybody is different, and everybody each patient has maybe a different set of circumstances, a different set of needs. Uh, and, and there's no guarantee because the the ten patients that rated you know uh, Doctor X or you know that's going to very highly that you're going to also find that doctor extremely extremely uh, satisfactory. The 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 truth is is that in general, across, you know, all things considered, when you look at averages, you know, there's a lot of variability across physicians. Some are consistently at the high end of the scale, and some are more consistently at the at the middle level of the scale or lower level of the scale. And so in, on average, you know, those physicians at the higher level are, are, are actually being more consistent in, in their high ratings, I guess, if you will. You know, the, the, the traits and the behaviors that led to those high ratings are being more consistent in those than the, than the providers at the lower end. So, so it does provide, this information does provide patients at least with a way of, of sorting out um, physicians that are consistently high performers and those that are not. Well, Roger, um, thank you so much for taking time to speak to our listeners today. I, I greatly appreciate it. Oh, it's, it's been a pleasure. I know that I've just scratched the surface, but I think that, uh, that we'll be seeing a lot of, of these patient-centered measures more. You know, we'll be seeing more and more of these measures um, as our healthcare system evolves. It allows us to look at whether it's evolving in a way that is still satisfactory and acceptable to patients. Thank you. Good luck with your presentation tomorrow. Okay, thank you. All right. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Roger Anderson, professor of public health sciences and chair of health services research at Penn State College of Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Well, uh, that's our show for today. I, I just want to recap a couple points Roger made that I think are really wonderful suggestions from helping make you make sure you get great medical care. One uh, is the point he made about having a, a patient log, a diary of concerns, and having that information organized, and also bringing a list of medications with you to your doctor. You can... Um, Perhaps include in that list of medications the old medicines you used to be on and the medicines separately that you're currently taking. With those diary of concerns, I think, as Roger pointed out, having it organized, having it organized so that your biggest concerns are, are listed right there at the top will help your doctor prioritize with you, making sure those those really critical issues get discussed. Well, that's our show for today. I hope you'll tune into Getting Better Healthcare again next time. You can download a podcast of this and other episodes of Getting Better Healthcare at webtalkradio.net. This is Steve Feldman. Thank you again for listening.